this is Brent Johnson from Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Doctor Who Podcast, and you are most welcome! Hello, this is Trevor from Brisbane. Tom from the North. Leeson from the constellation of Kerberos. James from London. This is the 150th episode of the Doctor Who Podcast. And, and you, you are, are most, most welcome. welcome. and all and welcome to another episode of the Doctor Who Podcast, a very, very special episode today because it's our 150th. Hello to Tom, hello to James and hello Lisa. Hello. Hello. And But we've got another person lurking over there in the uh, corner near the uh, China hutch of the camper van. Very special guest for this episode, comedian and Doctor Who fan, Ashley Freeze. Hello, Ashley. Hello there, Trev. How are you doing? Now, you might not recognise the voice, but um, if he started singing, then maybe you might recognise it. Because Ashley has been a uh, quite prolific contributor to the Doctor Who podcast. He's uh, done stuff for our Christmas episodes and various other things. He's done little ditties for us, which, which we're eternally grateful for. So, uh, yeah. Hello. Hello indeed. And thanks. it's lovely to be in the camper van today as well. Is it living up to your expectations? Well, I, I'm slightly surprised by this pile of mannequins in the corner. I wasn't expecting that at all. And I'm pretty sure one just twitched. We use that for when we're towing the camper van so we can use the uh, multi-passenger lane during peak hour. Ah, we put right. it in the passenger seat. That allow you to descend closer to the macro at the bottom there. I have to admit, I do enjoy the way that whenever we have someone on board in a camper van, all of us feel a sudden obligation to make a, a witty remark about a, a unique feature that's not been mentioned before. It's great, isn't it? It's wonderful to have a new guest because they pick up some part of the camper van which has up to this point not been revealed. Just just, just a little peek further into the wonders that is the DWP camper There's van. always a darker corner to explore. <laughs> yes, we actually had an email uh, earlier on, not last week, but the week before, asking us when our caravan regenerated into a camper van. And I, I seriously had to give some thought to this, and um, I'm, I'm afraid I can't remember. I think it might have been around the time we moved from the WhoCast to the DWP, because it used to be a caravan back in the WhoCast days, didn't it? And then it became a camper oh, van right. when we regenerated to the DWP. Oh, we've been in this camper van that long. Wow. Mm. Someone should open a window. <laughs> <laughs> they don't open. <laughs> it's to maintain the sound quality, you see. So we just have to put up with that smell. Well, it's funny we're all chortling away and having a good time here because that, that, that's a very apt way to start what we're going to be covering in this episode today. For our 150th episode, we thought it would be interesting to have a look back at the way Doctor Who has used humour in its history, whether intentionally or not. And uh, that's why we invited Ashley along today, because, well, who best to find humour in Doctor Who than a comedian? Yeah, sometimes, though, comedians are the people with the worst sense of humour. So uh, hopefully uh, hopefully, the, the analysis of Doctor Who won't be too... Uh, won't take the magic away. But, uh, but actually, I'm interested to find out, I mean, certainly with someone who, who 
makes a living out of uh, seeing the humour in sometimes situations that may not necessarily be overtly comedic. I mean, w- w- when you consider the classic run, let's say, of Doctor Who, which episodes stand out to you and think, ah, oh, I can either poke some fun at that or do you find some things funny about those episodes that perhaps the casual audience would miss or, or wouldn't think of? Well, I think finding, finding humour in something that's not meant to be funny it kind of depends on whether you're you're immersed in it, whether you've suspended disbelief or not. So there maybe there are some episodes of the, the the classic series, for example, some of the William Hartnell episodes, where you kind of look at it and the production values and maybe the way the story is put together, it, you fall out of it and you start to say, well, actually, that looks a bit lame. Maybe there's a joke about this. Maybe there's a joke about that. Generally speaking, I kind of try to take it as it is. The only episode I've really watched and tried to make a comedic commentary of was uh, Delta and the Bannermen, which is so bad. It, <laughs> the only way to enjoy it is to uh, is to say, well, that's that's funny. You know. That's a really bad way to start, I've got to say. That's my favourite <laughs> McCoy story, actually. <laughs> but I, the thing is, I, I enjoyed it despite the fact that there were so many short, shortcomings because I managed to find <laughs> the humour in it. I managed to to enjoy it as a, as a bit of variety, maybe, rather than a bit of... Uh, mm classic Doctor Who melodrama or sci-fi or whatever. It's interesting sometimes too when when you look at the way Doctor Who has used humour, especially in the classic era, was it intentional or not? Like you've got stories like the Hartnell story, The Gunfighters, which has intentional humour in it, you know, with the Doctor visiting the OK Corral and, you know, having to get his tooth pulled because he's got a toothache and stuff like that. But then you go to the extremes like Delta and the Bannerman where you wonder, well, were they really going for that comedic effect? Was all the stuff we see in there that people do laugh at in that story, is that intentional or not? Oh, well, I, I think that's a really good question. And I, I would say with Delta and the Bannerman, no, no, because it is such a... It's such a combination and a a bit of a mix-up, really, because you have got some really funny scenes, you know, some strange scenes for Doctor Who, dancing on a holiday camp, for example. When you look at a character like Gavrock, where it's played completely straight, and that's why I think that story feels so strange a lot of the time. But rather than looking at the gunfighters, Trev, I'd be interested to look at some others that were deliberately supposed to be funny, I think. I'm not entirely certain the gunfighters was. Uh, But you look at the rescue and the Romans, and basically Dennis Spooner's influence, on the Hartnell uh, episodes and you have got some I think some deliberately comedic well I'd say parts of episodes you know they've they've deliberately injected some humour into the script where a couple of years prior or a year prior to that they may not necessarily have tried Mm, I certainly I think with stories like the Romans, because, I mean, you have the character of Nero, who who is a, a deliberately comic character, and I think often they do use humour to try and, I, I suppose, balance against sometimes the more horrific and um, violent aspects of a story. Try and make a little bit more um, palatable for the viewer. Yeah, it also offsets the uh, the, the darker aspects of the show, um, in that it, it heightens the darkness, and also, you know, a bit of comic relief... Uh, and for what is a family show, I think it's important. You can probably get away with more darkness if you throw in a bit of comedy to offset it. Uh, when I came to sort of look through the episode, guys, to see how many comedy episodes of Doctor Who there were for this episode, you know, I was struck by how synonymous Doctor Who really is with comedy. It's sort of a 50-50 split. I mean, when you look at, like we say, stuff that's not intentionally uh, comedic, but 
ends up uh, appearing so in some of the fluffs and gaffs in the earlier series, uh, right through to the Graham Williams era, which was was wholly com- uh, comedic, and right up to the new series. And since the show has come back, I think humour has been an integral part. I mean, there isn't an episode which doesn't have some kind of comedic aspect to it, certainly to the portrayal of the Doctor. Or, you know, um, we look at the uh, Slavine, where essentially a, a comedy villain. So I think, I think comedy is, is, is intrinsically a part of Doctor Who. Mm, I'll go with that. I mean, you, you do need to have contrast. I, I my, my comment about this would be that the the way that comedy is introduced into the show, or the way that comedy is played into the show, is distinct in the classic series and the new series by, or distinguished by the fact that in the classic series, it seems to be the act, the lead actor and actors injecting it. Where in the new series, it seems to be very much scripted, and it's very much part of what's supposed to be going on. I, mean, I think if you look at things like, particularly the Troughton era. Um, there's an awful lot of stuff which is there, but it's placed there or emphasised by the lead actor, by Fraser Hines, by Patrick Troughton. And mm. I'm thinking of that lovely scene in uh, The Team of the Cybermen where they're commenting on Vic- uh, Victoria's dress, mm. um, and the Doctor goes to hold her hand, and so as does Jamie, and they wind up holding each other's hands. I mean, that's <laughs> very much a piece of business that's desi- that's been injected by the actors as opposed to something that's scripted. Um, then we get when when we get around to the Tom Baker comedy half hour in the late 70s, it's all about <laughs> Tom Baker ad living and. Changing the script, much to the consternation of the producers and the directors and the other actors who need to know where the hell they are, truth be told. Um, but when we get into the new series, it seems to be that when we think of things um, like The Lodger or, um, or really any, any, pretty much any Gareth Roberts script, um, you, you see that it's actually been written into the fabric of the story as, to be, as, mm. as opposed to something which is introduced by the actors. I think that's, that's the main distinction I notice. I can add to that though, Tom, because if you look at Douglas Adams' influence on the Tom Baker era, um, yeah, yeah. there are little touches. So I think it was Douglas Adams who first brought in the idea of taunting a Dalek for not being able to climb up the stairs or climb out of a climb out of a cellar. Uh, and yeah, also, yeah. if you remember in uh, Destiny of the Daleks, where the Doctor is trapped under something and ends up reading a yes, book yes. by Ulon Kalufid, you've got Douglas yes. Adams smugly referencing his own universe there. <laughs> so there, there have been little touches where the, uh, the script writers have been sort of uh, showing off, if you like. And what about Robert Holmes and his double acts as well? The little... Uh, the, the, the the double acts Rob, that Holmes were put into uh, into the the story is always meant to be the comedy turn, and of course that was in the era that was meant to be the the darkest of, of the, the Hinchcliffe and Holmes era. Uh, we we look back on and we remember the darkness, but we, you know, we we forget that there were these comedy double acts and there were comedy moments even within the darkness of that era. I, I think that certainly that that contrast is is the thing that they've emphasised on the most. Uh, when making the new programme. Because I think Russell T Davies has said many times that without contrast, you can't really appreciate the depths of uh, of either side of the story. So if you've got an overtly sad story, um, to inject some humour into it, where normally it might be quite inappropriate or feel quite inappropriate to do so, kind of puts it in, into perspective. And I, and I think that's something unique that RTD has brought to, to Doctor Who, because I'm not entirely certain Stephen Moffat uses humour in the same way RTD does. Don't come falling on from the sky Raise your glasses to the Doctor To the standard guy To the Doctor Let's ask a question. If this wasn't Doctor Who, if this was just any programme, how would it be if there was no humour? 
because uh, I, I, I think humor is a, a natural part of any form of drama. You look at um, look at say the stage musicals. Probably the most tragic stage musical out there is Blood Brothers. If those people have seen mm. it, will, will know. And uh, most of that script is actually heartwarmingly hilarious. They're, they're wonderful characters, and that lets you appreciate the actual drama more. So I, I think. If Doctor Who didn't use humour, if it took itself too seriously, it would be an awful program. I think if you take the humour, if you take if you take the humour out of Doctor Who, you're left you're left with season eighteen. Is what you is what you get. Um, <laughs> that is a very like, very yeah, good point. Yeah, I mean, that well, whole, with Meg Loss anyway. Of, well, yeah, okay. So if we take the humour out of it, then we've you've got this very serious, pondering, um, horrible, frankly, um, and almost um, what's the word? Exclusive. You know, season eighteen of Doctor Who. I know there's lots of fans of it, and I I, I like it because it's Tom Baker's last season. That's the reason mm. I like it. But it's so utterly different to the to the warm bouncy happy season 17 that preceded it and i'd say and i'd, and I'd suggest um even less you know less involving than the season that, that succeeded it so i think if you take season if you take the humor out of doctor who you're left with season 18 and, and that's that's it's uncomfortable i've got to be honest i i think it depends on what kind of humor it is because i think some some humor works really well within doctor who and others it just doesn't really work and i'm going to deliberately poke trevor here but you look at the unicorn and the wasp some people think that is a, a brilliant way of introducing a comedic episode into making into the way that they make doctor who these days now if you look at it in the way that it was used in something like the horns of nymon or even the chase you know where you, you know, why did marie celeste happen oh it was the daleks don't you know and, and very different and subtle ways that humor is applied to the story and generally i think fandom either likes one way that humor is introduced or another personally mm. i can't stand the cringeworthiness that rtd introduced you know like the burping um wheelie bin in in rose mm -hmm. i found really difficult the slovene were just embarrassing um and uh, i think there was moments where the doctor was shaking out radiation out of his foot in smith and jones those are the kind of things where yeah. i just think no it doesn't work and doctor who would be better oh. without that kind of humor those are the touchstones for me as well too. I mean, I, I was thinking of them when you were saying it, James. I, I think for me, Doctor Who really goes beyond the pale when it when it ventures into slapstick. And the classic era and the modern era have have been guilty of that. I mean, I was only watching Nightmare of Eden the other day, and the uh, Doctor in the CET machine going, oh. "My arm, my leg, my everything," and the, and then coming out all uh, mm. bedraggled and torn shirt. I mean, that 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 to me goes a little bit beyond. Mm. And and I think too is what I was trying to say before too that a series can get too confident sometimes. I mean, especially with Tom Baker by the Graham Williams era, he, he was running that show. He, he was running mm -hmm. Graham Williams. He, he, he was Doctor Who. And it can be very dangerous because you can end up with a lead character that can basically dictate. And we can have scenes like that. You know, we can have um, things that just wouldn't have been done with any other actor who had only just come to the role. And it's dangerous when, when a series becomes confident that it feels it can take those risks and, and often those risks don't work as when mm. humor's concerned because like you say James you can alienate as many people as you in, as you entertain I suppose but, but okay so the question I'd ask though is is that is that is that uh, middle-aged men and I can include myself in that saying that the slapstick's a problem because I, I remember it's interesting you mentioned Nightmare of Eden because I was like six or seven when I first saw that 
and I remember thinking it was great. I watched it again recently and thought it was dreadful. But when I think of <laughs> show, but when I think of, um, but, 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 but of course, critically, not worse than Genesis of the Daleks. Hey, hey. Um, <laughs> but when I think of um, scenes like Drum. the radiation shaking, and I think of scenes like, uh, which are more slapstick in the new series, I think, well, actually, no. I know that there's some seven, eight, nine, ten year olds who are going to be rolling around with this. And so, Trevor, the question I would ask you is those scenes that you mentioned, you know, you, you, you have children of that age. I mean, do, do they shy away? Do they cringe at those scenes as well? I don't know. I, I think the hallmark of a successful Doctor Who story or episode is that it can appeal to the young people and the older people. Mm. I, I think it can be intelligent enough that it doesn't have to pander to the young people and have all that slapstick, that broad humour. I mean, plenty of um, mm. like animated cartoons like The Simpsons and Futurama do that very well. They have mm. lots of stuff there for the kids. They have the eye candy, you know, they have the, you know explosions and the violence but they have the humor there that the adults can pick up on and mm. i think doctor who's no different i mean there's nothing wrong with having a bit of slapstick but when you fill an entire episode with it like unicorn and the wasp and like nightmare of eden and stuff like horns of naimon um that if you tip the balance too far either way then it it damages the episode but isn't that balance very very subjective i think it's an interesting uh set of criteria for balance you've got the performances you've got the, what's in the script but i think you've also got what's in the heart of the production team so for me one of the interesting things you're talking about season 18 um and you've got christopher h bidmead and on all the extras i've seen for the dvds there there's these these rather chippy interviews with him where he's saying how much <laughs> yes. of a conflict he seemed to be having with tom baker and why is that yeah. is because actually he tried to make the whole show dead serious very mathematical very scientific while he had an actor who was trying to make it into a an, an entertaining adventure and that conflict is i think one of the things that leads to a an imbalance in the way that the show comes across the sort of things you're talking about with things like the the physical comedy that comes in from a script where where the doctor gets um you know poisoned with radiation in um smith and jones and has to shake it out of mm. his leg the question is what is the balance there and i wonder if sometimes they're using comedy to balance the the disbelief that a modern audience would have for some of these concepts because we all know you can't shake radiation out your body that radiation would be would be a fatal thing and is is not um is not something that you can really handle so what does the doctor do he he comes up with some time lordy way of doing it it's fun to watch and it doesn't really make you question the premise i think that's actually quite a good way to use comedy that's interesting, I suppose, because, I mean, there, there, there certainly have been times in the classic series where, you know, the Doctor has had that sort of effect on him. And I suppose he hasn't stood there and shook his leg or done something comical to shrug it off. He's, he's either gone into a coma or, or, or he's brought up some inner reserve to try and combat that infection or disease or radiation or something like that. It's, it's interesting the way stories like Smith & Jones do handle that, that, that they go for the comic effect. But you're saying the reason for that is that the audience needs that suspension of disbelief with that, do they? Or, it, it's, or? The comedy is often the art of misdirection. So, you know, if, if we thought about it too too much, how could we really believe that there's some guy with a, a, a box that's bigger on the inside <laughs> who can travel through space and time? The whole thing is quite clearly a non-real-world concept. Likewise, a lot of the plots depend on things which, you know, the, the cynical uh, modern person would just say, that is a load of rubbish. But if it's delivered with charm, if it's delivered with humour, if it's... Uh, keeps you entertained you you don't question it because you're enjoying it too much and i think that's something the modern series has had to do much more so than the classic series because we have a much more savvy audience watching it and, and why not i mean as long as they're not saying as long as the doctor doesn't when he introduces somebody to the tardis say you know what this thing shouldn't exist 
you know what, this whole thing is probably just a set. At that point where they're kind of breaking the fourth wall and saying, hey guys, why we even believe this? That would be rubbish. But if when somebody comes into the TARDIS and the Doctor goes, I know, it's marvellous, isn't it? That, ex- that sort of gleeful excitement, which is a comedy mm. turn, that keeps that keeps the, 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 the fantasy alive. And, and that's a brilliant way to use humour. I, I, it's interesting listening to what Ashley is saying because I, I think what we're saying really it, is the way the story is told mixed with a little bit of personal taste. And I think if you look at um, two very different uses of comedy within a new series, The Unicorn and the Wasp, for instance, it is very much based on wordplay uh, with a little bit of um, physical comedy as opposed to the scene you've just described, Ashley. I think it depends. It, it depends whether you think... You know, the, the stuff within Smith and Jones is actually funny, or is it because the writer has written himself into a corner and doesn't know how uh, to explain why well, the Doctor's suddenly been, you know, consumed by radiation, and rather than him regenerate, he just shakes his foot. You know, I, I, I don't think that's particularly funny. Um, I, what, the, other, the other point I wanted to make uh, was, uh, Tom, you said that Doctor Who without comedy would be season 18, and I think if you were to eliminate all comedy from all Doctor Who and it was played straight as it was a straight drama series then I think you're looking at something like Battlestar Galactica which is Mm. something completely Uh. different uh, to what Doctor Who is yeah pretty much Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that, that works for me. I remember that, that that show Star Cops. It was on the far side of Blake Seven, and Blake Seven to me was high camp, high camp and melodrama. <laughs> but um, wasn't it but, good? But it's a bit, oh, it was great. It was wonderful. In a place where there was no Doctor Who, I was happily lap up my break, my Blake Seven. Um, but to pick up on something that uh, Ashley said, the the, the the times I watch Doctor Who and I'm least comfortable with it is when the fourth wall gets kicked in. Um, I, I, I had a look at Image of the Fendal recently, and it's just as Tom Baker is really beginning to. Uh, mutate into the show you know he's not part of the show he is the show um, and those moments there where he's addressing directly the camera similarly in the invasion of time when um, the doctor turns to the camera and says not even a sonic screwdriver is going to get me out of this one even it, it, it's hard it's very very hard I think the show can be conscious of itself without being self-conscious and um, comedy I think is the thing which allows uh, the tenth well as we say we're talking about contrast we're talking about um well, contrast will do, actually. Uh, we're talking about a release valve, and comedy's very good in that. I mean, there's a wonderful moment in um, uh, City of Death where Tom Baker ad-libs to, uh, to um, the, the female lead, and he says, you're, you're a very beautiful woman, probably. And mm. that is, that's, a very, that's a very tense scene. You know, the, do- the, to- the Doctor is under pressure there. But it's oh, you, think, you think that was ad-libbing? Released. Oh, absolutely. You think that was come a- on. Really? I don't know. That's the one thing with Tom Baker (laughs) is that you just never know because he is an incredibly talented actor. And for me, it's a lot of fun trying to think, did he ad-lib that? Or was that actually scripted and he just played it perfectly? I mean, is is that the kind of questions, Ashley, as a comedian, you look at sometimes? (laughs) Absolutely. Um, The the art of of stand-up comedy is to make something that's innately scripted appear to be off the cuff. And in fact, one of the tricks comedians use, and I don't want to spoil any uh, any illusions here, is if you do come up with a good ad-lib at one gig, you often attempt to recreate that ad-lib at future gigs to make it seem <laughs> spontaneous, to make it seem like it's just something that, that really happened in the moment. So sure, um, the best comedy scenes will appear to be off the cuff, and quite rightly so. Eternal wisdom is my guide. 
I wonder how how relevant it is to mention Patrick Troughton and John, uh, Patrick Troughton's take on on acting and John Pertwee's take on acting. Okay, I'm I'm sure you guys probably already know this story, um, but the reason I mention it is because you mentioned it is because actually you mentioned improvisation. And my understanding is that Patrick Troughton would always use the script very much as a guide hmm. rather than uh, <laughs> a bible. And th- this this apparently came to head came to a head in a story that I'll relate about um, rehearsals for the Three Doctors. John Pertwee was the opposite. He was very much here is the script. I say these lines at this point, and that's my role. Um, and of course, and, and and apparently they were they were rehearsing one of the early TARDIS scenes, and Patrick Troughton said something near enough what the line was, uh, which confused Pertwee. And apparently there was a moment of of not not tension, but if anything was going to go wrong, it was going to go wrong there. Hmm. Um, but it, but but it but it breaks down. I mean, what, what I find interesting is when we think about um, comedy, we think about ad libbing, and we think about the craft of acting. Um, I noticed I, I watched a. A series of clips uh, about William Hartnell and his ability, inability to remember, etc. You know, that whole that whole Billy Fluff thing, um, and it seemed to be enti- not so much down to the lead actor, but down to the company as to whether or not the the scene would keep rolling, or or, or, or how the the humour or the fluff would be integrated into the scene. Mm. Um, so in Hartnell's day, it would seem that they recognised him as the lead as the lead actor, you know, the grand old man of the company. And if he didn't learn his lines or if he got them wrong, they would just do what they had to to keep the cameras rolling because that was the nature of television making in those days. Where with Troughton, it was very much more about well, okay, we are going to improvise our way through this and we'll get to the end and it will be fun. And there's a sort of freshness and there's a kind of mischievous, mischievous twinkle about the whole company in the Trout Mears that I really, really love. That's not that's really not the case with Pertwee. It's certainly not the case in early Baker, but by late Baker, you've got this weird thing where the actor's going where the hell he wants mm-hmm. um, and the company's being forced to go along with him. But, but of course, that's clamped down on in, by the time we get to... Uh, Peter Davison. I don't really see too much of it going on in Colin Baker, um, except for that weird line in Vengeance on Varos where he makes the joke about the water. I don't know. Do you know the, do you know the scene I mean? No, no, no. no. <laughs> okay, sorry. Okay, well, th- there's the okay, there's, there's the moment in Vengeance on Varos where he's um, uh, where the Doctor believes he's in a desert, and yes, he's and his and his last last little line is he goes Perry. Hey! And oh. it, you've got to look for it, but oh. it, but it's there. And, and, and similarly, in the it's a terrible pun. And similarly, in the in the commentary, he says, "Yeah, I did that deliberately. I don't think anybody noticed." It's like, well, that's oh, great. I that's wonder. <laughs> See, things, do you really believe the commentary about this kind of things uh, later? I mean, the the only one that I really do believe because it isn't overtly comedic, I suppose, uh, or, or the retelling of the story isn't, is in Warriors of the Deep, where Davison had lipped. What have you been eating? When he put that helmet mm. uh, on after um, <laughs> he, he disabled someone, and I, I think that's great. And I also think that the writer Johnny Morris would probably have said, um, <laughs> "No, that was my line." If if Davidson <laughs> was telling um, telling fibs, but I, I think actors actors are there because of the buzz they get when they see themselves on telly or when they get a reaction to their performance. And I think what better reaction can you get if you ad lib something? And people like it, you know. I, I think mm. that must give you the the biggest buzz as a performer, um, almost almost that is possible. Do you know what? The, I think my favourite Tom Baker line, actually, apart from that one from City of Death, is right in the beginning, right in Robot, where he he said, he said something like, um, "I'm not a real doctor, and Harry here is only qualified to work on sailors." <laughs> well, that that probably leads us very nicely to uh, a little piece that Ian and Michelle have provided, because um, we've been talking here about stories that are, I suppose, comedic or not comedic. Ian and Michelle had a look at the fourth Doctor story, The Horns of Nymon, and uh, poses the question, is it a proper story or a panto? 
Over to you guys. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, I particularly was excited when I heard that we were going to get a chance to look back and rethink Horns of Nyman a bit. This, I believe, was the very first Doctor Who story that I ever saw. I have a special fondness for the Horns of Nyman. We've been tasked to, to decide about whether this is panto or not, which we think probably tends to mean, was this meant to be intentionally silly and intentionally over the top, or is this a serious Doctor Who story? That's the way we're going to approach this. So, Ian, what are your opinions? I think to look at the question of whether the humour had become the point of the show rather than an incidental part of the show, you have to look at what's actually funny in this story. So to start at the most obvious one, you have Soldied, whose performance is, yes, very over the top. But to be honest, I don't think it's really that much more over the top than many other classic Who villains. If you look at Davros's many rants, they're just as ludicrous, but his delivery is a bit more serious. And I don't really think that Graham Crowden's portrayal is meant to be funny. He always came across to me as a mad scientist, as one of these folks who had just lost it. And for the most part, I'm willing to accept him at that level. It's interesting in listening to the commentaries on the video, uh, Graham Crowden describes himself as a ham actor. He certainly was having fun with the role in a way that I think was probably over the top. And I don't think it was intended to be that way. There's comments from the author, Anthony Reed, that show that he would prefer the actors not to go as far with the comedy as they went. Yes, and there's an almost religious air around his character as well. And again, having that kind of very over-the-top religious leader is, is actually not uncommon. And I think that his portrayal is fairly consistent with that. I'm not even sure how much I buy into the idea that the infamous death scene was totally over the top. As to be honest, it's pretty consistent with the rest of the performance of the character throughout the show. My dreams of conquest! You have brought this calamity upon me! You've brought it on yourself! You will die for your interference! Stop him! You But I would argue that this is melodrama, uh, melodrama being a genre where the characters are fairly stereotyped and a little bit over the top, where situations are created to play on the emotions of the audience. And so there are things like big cliffhangers, like you find all the time in Doctor Who, where plot becomes more important than character development per se. And, and you get stock characters like the villain and the hero and the heroine, both the author and Lala Ward in talking about this production, describe it as a melodrama. Yes, I think that actually links into the second of the, the humorous elements that I picked up on watching it, which is Malcolm Terrace as the co-pilot, who again is this very over-the-top, scheming villain. Uh, he almost needs a moustache to twirl. But again, I got every impression that it was meant to be a straight character and a straight performance. It, I don't think it was intentionally funny. It was just slightly over-the-top and melodramatic, as you say. In melodrama, there's often a sidekick to the main villain, and the sidekick is a bit of a bumbling fool who doesn't always get things right. You could argue that he plays the, that role. Absolutely. I think the third thing I would look at in terms of the humour is, of course, the Nymon themselves. But again, this is the BBC props department doing their best to make an alien, and it's not really worked when they put it on the screen. Which, I mean, this is the same season that had Eratu, the Mandrells, and our Disco Mavellans. 
it's very much of the era. To carry on with the theme, I'm quite certain the BBC costume department didn't mean for that to be a funny costume. They were actually trying to do a serious and scary monster. It just didn't work. And if we're going to start knocking classic Who for when the costumes don't work, that's going to be a long list. Clearly, the Naimon themselves tie very deeply into the classic mythology of the Minotaur. I happen to think that that's a very interesting myth to have reshaped in galactic terms for this story. I think that's a great and, and, and very serious topic for Doctor Who to be approaching there, rather than something silly. I'm glad this time I reminded them to paint their ship white. The last time anything like this happened, I completely forgot, caused quite a hoo-ha. What are you talking about? Hmm? Oh, other times other places it's just unfortunate that um as is often the case in classic who the realization didn't quite live up to the vision and i think when you look at the story in the round the only piece that i picked up as being very deliberately humorous and silly was the fourth doctor and his usual banter but this was totally par for the course for this era of who and actually part of the charm of that era what could possibly go wrong you know I've simply got to stop saying that. Every single time I say what could possibly go wrong, something goes... Oh! It's uncanny, isn't it? People like to kind of throw out this idea of pantomime because this came out over the, the Christmas season. I guess my, my final take on it is that if it helps you to think of it as a little bit of Christmas fluff, by all means believe that if it helps you enjoy the story, because I happen to think there's a lot to love about this one. Overall, I think the answer to our question is a resounding no. To be panto, would I think have required them to intend it to be silly or funny? And I honestly don't think they did. But if you suspend disbelief a bit, and let's be honest, suspending disbelief is a pretty important skill for watching most classic Who... This is a good, solid and very traditional old-school Who story, and it's nowhere near as bad as its reputation would have you believe. In the name of the second Scotland Empire... He went into the complex. But of course, all according to plan, the Nyman will take care of him. <laughs> Goodbye, Doctor. <laughs> Meanwhile, in an upmarket flat in Brighton, a very important call is being made. Hello, Colin Baker. Hello, Colin. This is John. John Nathan Turner. John, you old devil, how are you? I'm good, good. Never been better. Family keeping well? Tickety-boo, John. Tickety-boo. I've even enrolled my cousins at that amazing private school you told me about. Cost an absolute fortune, mine, but nothing's too good for my family. Good, Colin, good. Now listen, Colin, the reason I'm calling, I've got some news. Ah, uh, about next season? Great. I'm looking forward to filming in Blackpool. And with Michael Goff. Is he playing, uh, what was that character's name again? The one he played in the 60s. Celestial Toymaker. Yes, that's him. Location filming. <sighs> Can be a fair nightmare, though, can't it? Yes. Just one minute, John. I think that's the front door. My delivery's arrived. Hello, Governor. Where do you want this piano? Through here, boys. First door on the left. Careful now. Mind you don't scratch the hardwood floors. Sorry, John. Where were we? You bought a piano? Yes. A touch extravagant, but well worth it. And of course, knowing I have a regular income really makes it an easy decision. Now then, boys, I want the chaise long by the window and the Picasso in the hallway. 
now. What were you saying, John? Well, Colin, I'm ringing because I have some good news and some bad news. The good news is I've got you a spot in my panto this Christmas. The lead role, in fact. Two months, solid work. Hang on a minute. Marvellous, John. I do love a bit of pantomime. Treading the boards, the exhilarating smell of the theatre, my adoring public eating up my every word. The magic of the theatre, it never fails to excite me. Will that scupper the rehearsal time for the next series of Who? Regal Blue or Regency Red, John, which do you prefer? It's the upholstery colours for the new lounge suite. Which do you prefer? Um, uh, Regal Blue, I think. Look, Colin, did you hear what I said? Yes, 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 John. Changing the cast next season. Now, I love Bonnie as much as the next man, but if she has to go, she has to go. I'm sure you'll have an ace up your sleeve for the next companion. How about a sassy safecracker? Or, or a young girl who works in an upmarket department store? No, no. Well, that is a relief, John. She's very good, isn't she? I've always said so. That reminds me, I'd had an idea for an upcoming story. How about we discover she has an evil twin, hell-bent on harnessing the power of something called dark matter. She tries to kill Mel and ensnare the Doctor in some devilish trap. I'm sure Pip and Jane could hammer out the details. That's potential, wouldn't you say? Uh, Listen, John, could you hang on for a moment? I think it's the chap from Tiffany's. You could always tell Tiffany's they have a very distinctive knock, John. We've picked out this absolutely wonderful antique crystal for the drawing room, and I want to make sure it's arrived and erected in time for my big party I next week. really hang on for too long, Colin. No, no, no. I told the lady in the store that I wanted the oh. larger of the two for the hall table. Yes, I know it's considerably Where more expensive. Oh, I don't know. Three of them? Hold on a moment, would you? I've just got to finish this call. Sorry, John, dear boy. Look... I have to go. Uh, this insufferable man doesn't seem to have got my order correct. So many things to arrange, John. I'll drop by the studio tomorrow lunchtime, pick up the scripts, get the travel arrangements for Blackpool. How's that sound, John? Listen, Colin, I'm not sure you understand. Oh, I understand completely, John. Got it all under control. I'll speak to you tomorrow. TTFN, John. Well, that didn't go to plan at all. Now, where is that number for McCoy? Hi, Sylvester. It's John. John Nathan Turner. Listen, I have some good news and some bad news. So, one question I think we should be discussing is comedians who've actually made their way into the cast of Doctor Who episodes. Quite apart from members of the company supporting cast, um, you know, the lead actor in Doctor Who has, in a couple of very famous cases, come from a comedic background. The most obvious one I can think of is, of course, John Pertwee, the third Doctor. Mm. Yeah, well, that's right. I'm, 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 I mean, it's interesting that they sometimes get these people who have a comedic background because they're looking for that sort of interpretation in the role. And it could be argued that... You know, the third Doctor being a bit of a dandy, that is a bit of a comedic role anyway. And and definitely the seventh Doctor with Sylvester McCoy, I, I think half his persona is made up as like a comedy-type Doctor. Well, I don't, it's interesting. The third Doctor is actually, he's, he's one of the straightest uh, of all the Doctors, really. Uh, aside from the occasional, uh, he would be uh, 
he would be um, receiving some mind probe treatment or uh, stuck in a vortex, <laughs> and they would always be the boggle-eyed and, and the gurning face. That, to me, that seemed to be the the only aspect of his comedic personality that he, that he brought to the role. I think it's been said before many, many times that comedians make great actors because they have such a fantastic sense of timing that they've spent all their times on the stage or in other comedic productions um, honing that craft that when they come to do, like in inverted commas, proper acting, they, they can bring such a richness to the role because they have that great sense of um, when something works and when something doesn't. But is it also this, the ability that a comedian has to vacillate between or to, tra- to transfer between doing something quite tragic and doing something which is a, which is overly funny. I mean, it, it, I like the, I like the Charlie Chaplin idea that tragedy is life in close up, and comic and comedy is life mm-hmm. from a distance. And, and someone that can do comedy and do it very very well, it normally has this underlying this underlying current of pathos. I mean, when I think of Sylvester McCoy, yes, he do, he does do funny and physical comedy quite well. But what he does really really well has been suggested as has been suggested a number of times are the little things. When, mm. the, when the Seventh Doctor is being little and small and quiet, it's really very, it's very intimate and it's very sad. There's a real sense of loneliness going on in there, as opposed to doing the whole arm waving. I'm I'm playing the spoons bit. If that makes any sense. He does. He delivers those uh, those moments uh, throughout his era really well. The first I can think of is at the end of Dragonfire uh, with the, the farewell to Mel. It's wonderful and touching. It's the first time we really saw that aspect to him. And then and then in the cafe scenes uh, in the uh, the following story, uh, Remembrance of the Daleks. Uh, wonderful little moments of darkness, uh, which he delivers perfectly, pitch perfect. I, I think McCoy's comfort zone or his default mode was was comedy. I mean, when you consider his background, particularly the Ken Campbell comedy roadshow or, or whatever it was um i i think that's very evident uh, in the first few few stories um I, I i like the contrast i wonder whether or not the the doctor would have been able to or the seventh doctor would have been such a convincing dark manipulator had he not started off life as this well seemingly a bit of a buffoon um in, in his first three stories i i just like the way that cartmel i think it was cartmel deliberately almost did a U-turn with the Seventh Doctor and I, I think the reason it worked so well towards the end was because of how poorly it started at the beginning. Yes, yeah, so the, the comedy at the beginning um, sort of accentuating the darkness. It's, it's that dichotomy yes, very again. Much so. it's, it's, it's the it, one it's the um, feeding the other, yeah. I'd, I'd suggest there's a difference though in terms of comedy and, and, and comedians being in Doctor Who between someone like Richard Briers delivering what's meant, what is a, what's meant to be a panto villain character in something like Paradise Towers and then Halen Pace um, yeah. Turning up in survival. So, yeah. I, I, oh my goodness, I forgot them. It's probably for the best, Trev. I, 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 I have problems with that. Um, overly comedy comedic actors being placed in Doctor Who in their pairing, and just being confusing. I mean, why did it have to be Hale and Pace? What did they add to that story? Well, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that they're nasty people, but you know, they, it, they, it just their casting doesn't make sense to me. Ken Dodd. It was marketing. Yes. It was marketing. It's as okay. simple as that. But I, th- I think it's very different today. And this is something Ashley mentioned uh, off mic. And I- I'm interested, certainly, Ashley, in your perspective on this. Do you think um, people who are renowned for their comic- comedic career, Catherine Tate, for example, suddenly put into a relatively dramatic role? Does that work in Doctor Who, in your view? It's interesting, isn't it? Because the, the initial reaction that people had to Catherine Tate was, oh no, it's going to turn Doctor Who into the Catherine Tate show, when in fact she delivered a fabulous performance simply mm, because absolutely. to be the great comedian, she also had to have that range uh, <laughs> as an actor as well. So I, I think it's not backfired in the same way as those pretty 
stunt casting cameos that you mentioned the hail and pace thing was you know it might as well it'd be the equivalent i reckon of putting jedward into an episode uh in the modern <laughs> series it was just oh, Romulus it, it, and Remus. It, it stuck out like a sore thumb it was awful um don't tempt fate ashley at- vengeance of jedwards uh in series eight no (laughs) Uh, oh worst uh, the worst case scenario i think would be something like um one of those talent search shows where the winner gets to be the next doctor that would be awful wouldn't it oh god Uh, (laughs) graham norton hosting the the end of time uh but no uh, if you look at some of the (laughs) some of the appearances of comedians in in the modern series so let's take bill bailey uh, as a good example, one of my favourite comedians, and the the mm. feedback I heard from you guys was not oh no they've stunt casted Bill Bailey, but more why couldn't we see more of him? And that's yeah. that's quite a big mm. difference from from what you were saying about Hale and Pace. Maybe the difference with Bill Bailey is that when you think of Catherine Tate, and I've got to say early, and I've said it many times, the one time, the one day I was ashamed to be a Doctor Who fan was when I heard all the dreadful <laughs> stuff that um, that uh, fandom react that some of fandom reacted to. She was brilliant. She was possibly one of the best companions of all time and, def- and certainly the best one of the new series Catherine Tate absolutely fantastic um, one of the things we, we notice about Bill Bailey is that although he's a comedic actor when we see his work in black books he's he's still playing a character and playing well, I don't know as far as, as far as that is a character really um, but playing a very convincing character and doing a really good job of it so when he turns up in Doctor Who it's not as if he's been carrying a, a comedy vehicle he's been a character in a show so he can so perhaps the audience is happy to, is happier to accept him as another character in another show maybe with, with someone like Catherine Tate you've got someone who's bit who's carrying a vehicle um, and, and playing a series of very of, of grotesques with it, within that vehicle, and I suppose maybe, maybe the panic was that she would do that within the, con- the context of Doctor Who. Well, that that I think is precisely it, and I think it was magnified when it was announced that Lee Evans was going to be in what was termed the Easter Special and Planet of the Dead as mm. uh, as Bernard. I think it was. Now, I I was hugely concerned at that piece of casting, and yet I loved his performance. I thought that was one of the few things about that story that they got right. It's not the same as having Clive Dunn doing uh, Corporal Jones or that or that fellow who was who's cast who was nearly cast for the Fourth Doctor as Mister Pastry. That's someone doing a comedy turn in Doctor Who, as opposed to being a character who has an element of comedy in their portrayal. Sorry, I'm I'm still stuck back on Mister Pastry. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> uh, in fact, let, let me, I, should, I should put that in context, shouldn't I? Hang on. Um, <laughs> Probably. <laughs> Russ Colonials, yes. right? Okay, sorry. Um, so, Mr. Pastry um, was a slapstick comedy character um, who was played by a guy called Richard Hearn. Um, now, Richard Hearn uh, was very famously almost going to play the Fourth Doctor, but um, the thing which put the absolute kibosh on it was that he wanted to play the Fourth Doctor as this character, Mr. Pastry, who's essentially um, an older, slightly drunker version of Charlie Chaplin. Now, you could argue that you got a comedy character by the by, by 1979 and 1980 anyway, but to see, you know, well, here's the thing. So, listeners. If you go to um, your favourite video streaming site, go and have a look. Um, look up a guy called Richard Hearn, H uh, E A R N E, or Mr. Pastry. Um, this guy was in serious contention for the role of the Fourth Doctor, and what you see in the way that uh, Mr. Pastry behaves is what is the way he wanted to play the fir- Fourth Doctor. So, as we're talking about comedy yeah. and Doctor Who, have a look at that, and that's what we could have got. There we go, a first. The first time I've ever written down Mr. Pastry in my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, moving along. Thank you, Tom. No worries. <laughs> Educate and bore. That's my job. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily in that order. Exactly so. 
I sit and wait for the next series. I miss it a lot. It'd make my blood boil. Should a spoiler give away the plot? But we've been told Aim is leaving. That makes my heart sink. The weeping angels finally get her. You'd think she would have known better. Don't even blink So farewell, Paul Do you were mighty fine You reminded me of the Sibylline And you tried to seduce the doctor You were handy with a sword Not universally adored But you looked after our time, Lord And in the TARDIS you got knocked up Then while pregnant you got locked up Now thanks to weeping angels you're gone Farewell Amy Pond And Rory We've talked about the comedians that we've enjoyed in Doctor Who Can I say two words and see what your reaction are? Um, Mm. Peter Kay Love oh, Br- brilliant. <laughs> I loved him, and I knew there was going to be a bit of a disagreement. <laughs> We've yet to talk about Love and Monsters on uh, on the DWP, and I, I look forward to the day when we uh, we analyse that in depth. But because uh, I know Trevor can't stand it, but I, I absolutely <laughs> adore that episode. I think it's a fantastic uh, com- piece of comedy, um, and again, it highlights everything I was saying about the Russell T Davis era earlier. It's actually a very sad story, but it's clearly comic as well and it's just one that i happen to find very very funny i totally agree james it is a very sad story but i mean um <laughs> stories like love and monsters are there for the comedic value there is no other reason for them to exist they're, they're they're not really there to tell a story they're there to string together a series of in inverted commas funny jokes i suppose but uh, which which is why you have a comedian basically in the lead role for that story and you've got um danny blue from hustle also playing another very comedic character, even though he himself is not a comedian per se. Well, he's he's not overly comedic either. That's um, Mark Warren's character, I think you're talking about, Elton Mm. Pope. Um, It's a story of his life. And if you remember, the climax to that story is about his parents dying, which, you know, you can't really say is overtly comic. um, (laughs) Overtly comic. But but, but I think it's... um, it's just a, a clever use of comedy in a tragedy. And I think if you look at a number of um, British, in particular, comedy programme sitcoms, they are very funny. I mean, I'm, I'm going to use Dad's Army. Tom mentioned Corporal Jones earlier. The World War II was, was, a, was a tragedy. It was a pretty nasty event. And yet there's a number of uh, comedies that have come out of that that treat the war with real respect and reverence and because it is possible to get comedy from tragedy even shakespeare did it however come i i have to say if there was a special edition box set which said it was special edition because it came without love and monsters i might be prepared to buy that um it's all very well saying there's tragedy in the story but please come on what have they actually done to the doctor who universe in that story they turned the doctor and rose into the scooby-doo gang 
running around mm. backwards and <laughs> back and forwards, um, you know, running after the monster, the run- monster running after them. They end on one of the most painful jokes uh, relating to the fact that um, his girlfriend <laughs> yes. had turned into a face on a paving slab, but they could still be intimate in some way. And mm. the whole thing smacks of um, <laughs> almost a fan production. <laughs> with it, the, the actual tone of the humour the tone of the humour is um, is childish and, and quite weak. And although it's still Doctor Who, it, and although actually I'd probably still rather watch that than half a dozen other things on TV, non- nonetheless, that actually is one of those episodes where the, the, co- the comedy is um, it's just gone too far. Well, that's really interesting hearing you say that because I, th- I think what you've done is gone back and just proved what we said earlier, and it's all about taste uh, it is comedic there's no question it's comedic your interpretation or that it's childish in some way means it's going to be funny for some people and perhaps not others now the whole the whole tenth doctor and rose thing where they are running around the universe having a wonderful time is part of the season two arc and yet perhaps it does reach a crescendo in love and monsters but the fact that they're getting too complacent you know i i suppose you could say it's because they're slowly falling in love with each other is 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 what generates the climax to that season and why doomsday is so painful when they have to part Mm. and i i think love and monsters serves a purpose um as part of a longer series and i think if if you were to have a box set without that particular episode the payoff in doomsday would be far less rewarding i think too it, it was the new production team's first stab at having, um, you know, the the, the Doctor Light episodes. That, that that was the first one for the Tenet era. And they went that way of... I mean, to me, Love and Monsters is a filler episode. It, it's there to kill time because they couldn't have Tenet for the entire run, so they needed that Doctor Light episode. Next year, they went for a different tack, and we get a story like Blink, <laughs> where they do a Doctor Light episode in the most brilliant way, but they don't have to revert to the um, gutter humour that we have in Love and Monsters. <laughs> So it's childish or it's gutter humour. It's all about taste. Well, but this, but this is the thing. You, you raise a point which is very close to my heart. There's a difference between something being childish, childlike and puerile. As soon as it gets being into it, get crosses the boundary into being puerile. I'm, I'm immediately switched off and I go cold. Um, for instance, there's that show, The Young Ones. Um, a lot of it is fine. A lot of it is brilliant. A lot of it is very, very, very funny. But every so often it's just puerile. Um, and when I when I when I come across that in life as well, it's just like okay, can, yeah, all right, I get I get that bodily functions are funny, but can we move on? It's it's it's, it's not. All- it all goes back to the subjectivity of uh, of comedy. You know, I think yeah. generally, broadly speaking, uh, everyone can agree uh, of what. Uh, um, what, what drama is you know you look at the, you look at uh, a dramatic film you, you can see that that's a dramatic scene and you can get sort of emotionally involved in that and you can see uh, a sad uh, touching scene we can all sort of we can all see that that's a sad touching scene but with comedy it, it's it is it's subjective and i think it divides people more so you were always gonna you were gonna press some people's buttons and other people are going to be left cold by it so it, it's a gamble mm. Com- comedy in a show like doctor who is, is a gamble each time because you're always going to alienate people but do you know what? okay i wonder one, one other thing i mean as we get older you know we realize that you know, that life isn't any well it can happen it doesn't have to be as you get older but as we mature we realize that life is not all fun it is actually quite. It is. It can be very, very distressing sometimes. Um, and what I notice is that as as I get older, it's it's 
sometimes absolutely necessary to take humour from very tragic events. Um, you know, when, when, when we, uh, if you attend um, the funeral of someone that you've very dearly loved, it can sometimes be very helpful to remember, to remember the things that they would have laughed at. Um, you know, there are some jobs that people have to do on a daily basis, you know, even if you're working in medicine, if you're working in the law, there are some really tragic things that happen. But sometimes it is appropriate to just to take a moment to think, there's, there's there's something about this that's very very tragic. But there's something actually that, that's quite funny about mm. it too. I, I think there's something uh, in a, um, I'm talking about our country uh, in Britain. There's something in our national psyche about you know, laughing at the darkness in things. We do tend to find find the humour in, yes. in very dark things. So I think the fact that Doctor Who is, is a show made in this country, uh, maybe that, maybe that's the reason it's reflected in, in the way the show is made. Absolutely, but it's a question of context. So um, I've been to funerals where the uh, the, the the mourners, if you like, are raised to laughter in fondness of of the departed. But you've, I've never been to a humoral, funeral where somebody's thrown a custard pie in someone's face. There's, there's mm. context and there's the sort of humour that you're using that really has to be in balance, which is why, for me, actually, the some of the balance of types of humour within Love and Monsters just is too far removed from the tragedy underpinning underpinning the story mm. with the um the doctor seeing the, the the young child who's lost his mother it it doesn't it, it doesn't tally with then the sort of uh, cheerful running around um scooby doing that, that that goes on earlier on and and maybe mm. that's maybe that is partly a question of, of our own personal boundaries and taste i have no objection to farting wheelie bins or burping wheelie bins in um in rows <laughs> where i know that trev trev would be yeah. uh, in, inflamed by such a thing but in in the context <laughs> of something very tragic if someone just pops up and kind of spoils the moments with something um out of keeping then i'm not sure mm. it necessarily works can I offer you something from the new series that I thought it that I think illustrates this uh, this balance really well? Um, when we think about the last couple of episodes of season two, when Jackie Tyler and Pete Tyler meet again, Pete from one universe, Jackie from the from the other, that's a really hard scene. I mean, really, here is your dead wife, here is your dead husband standing in front of you right now. But it's balanced beautifully with this whole thing where where Pete's saying, Jackie, it's all right, I'm rich. And she's like, really? How rich? (laughs) You know, that that is a brilliant use of comedy to diffuse something Mm. which is really very dramatic and very very heavy, I think. I think you're absolutely right, Tom. And it, it comes again to what I was saying about the balance between the moment and the characters and, and the context. And actually, those two people knew each other and knew what each what made each other tick. And so why not? That's a really fond mm. tribute to, to that moment that, that's heartwarmingly funny. It, well, and it adds to it. It adds a, a, a complete sense of... Um, I'm not really sure what it adds. It, it, it adds a bit more meat to that particular scene. Um, the fact that you're sitting there, you're, you're watching, as you say, Tom, you know, two people who should never have met again, that in itself is... It really pulls on the emotional strings, and then it's diffused by the humour, and it just adds it adds an additional emotion to that to the impact of the scene. And I, I think it's one of the best scenes Russell T Davis ever wrote. There's a, a wonderful scene in The Doctor's Wife, where again this idea that a moment is amplified by the comedy really comes out. Um, and I know I know again that you guys aren't all universally. Uh, fans of Amy but I think she has got the ability to deliver the killer line and then the doctor's wife there's this scene where she turns to the doctor and goes 
did you wish really hard? And that explodes the episode and it explodes the moment. And that's comedy. And yet at the same time, there's that emotional drama behind it. And I think that's the perfect confluence. Well, I'll tell you what makes that scene work for me so well. It's not Karen Gillan's line. It's Matt Smith's reaction to it. Now that is, is what really makes that very, very funny. Well, you know a series has arrived. You know your series that you've watched for many years is popular when everyone starts making fun of it. Now, comedy and uh, homages and, and parody skits, if you go on YouTube, you can literally spend days where, where, where people have done affectionate comedy pieces about their favourite programme. And it's something that's even, I suppose, permeated in, into modern culture. Pretty much every skit or, or comedy serial show worth its salt has done some form of Doctor Who parody. The Simpsons. I think of The Simpsons mm. where you've got, uh, where you have that. And certainly also Family mm. Guy, where uh, there are references to Doctor Who. Um, but, but, but you're right. I mean, I, I remember uh, growing up in the 80s, uh, my, one of my favourite shows was The Lenny Henry Show. Um, and one of my favourite episodes in that was the one where he did a Doctor Who. Uh, he, he did a Doctor Who parody. And interestingly enough, Trevor, you're right. It, it was a black doctor. Um, well, that's funny in itself for reasons we haven't got time to go into here. Um, and it, but, it, but it was essentially the scarf was there, the dog was there, um, the screaming assistant was there. And the was, it, was there a Jamaican there being, Cyberman? Being a bit Margaret Thatcher. Yes, yeah, it was. Yeah. It was huge. It was, it, I, I thought it was hilariously funny. I think that's one of the extras on, um, on Earthshock, in fact. See, one of my pervading memories of Doctor Who parodies was uh, there was a, a radio presenter still on the go, but he was he was on Radio One in in the eighties and nineties. So Steve Wright, he did a he used to do comedy sketches in his um, oh, yeah. in his show, and one of them was the Down the Pan Daleks, uh, and they would they would come on. They were kind of feckless, useless Daleks that, that couldn't uh, that couldn't destroy anything, uh, and, and they were they were comedy, but they were really being done down. And I started to think. When I when I was thinking back to this as being the the one that I could remember, the at what point did uh, these sorts of comedy sketches stop being sort of homages and start having an effect on people's uh, perception of the show? Because uh, hmm. you know, in the eighties uh, and certainly into the nineties, when the show was off the air, it be- Doctor Who became something. It was it was a it was something to be laughed at, something to be yeah. uh, to be mocked, and I wonder how much uh, effect these these skits and these comedy um, comedy takes on Doctor Who had an effect on shaping people's opinion. Massive, absolutely huge. And I mm. think particularly within, as you say, from from Colin Baker onwards, basically, whenever you saw Doctor Who. Um, on a comedy show, it would always be to poke fun either at the Daleks mm. or the way you know the Doctor dresses because it's generally silly. Um, it's certainly with the you know uh, the question marks in the in, in the later years. It was very easy to pick up all of the poor points of Doctor Who, and I think that embedded certainly within the UK the idea that Doctor Who was a bit naff uh, to the mm. point whereby I think it's only recently I think it was someone like Virgin I can't remember who it was just a couple of years or so ago. They they had an advert saying not all Doctor Who is as bad as the Sylvester McCoy era, and they had that on London <laughs> Underground stations. You know, really? so it was basically assuming everybody thought the Seventh Doctor was rubbish. <laughs> no, I, I wow. think too. I mean, I I think of other sci-fi series like like Star Trek, for example, which which had a very similar thing to Doctor Who, as it had a bit of a premature end, just a lot sooner than uh, Doctor Who ever did. And sure, you can probably find as many digs at Star Trek as you can for Doctor Who. Now, whether that's necessarily saying that Star Trek, whether Doctor Who's rubbish or not, 
if, if you're going to make comedy, you're looking for the conflict. You're looking for the bad parts of it that you, that you can accentuate. Mm. You know, you want to talk about the guy in the scarf. You want to do the stuff with the wobbly walls. You want to have him with a packet of jelly babies offering it to everyone who'll want one. You've got the tin dog. You've got the skimpy lady in oh, the man. leathers. Um, that's where the comedy comes from. And, and I suppose a byproduct of that. Let me jump in here. You've just come up with five things off the top of your head that's easy to make fun of. Now do exactly the same thing with Star Trek. Go. Well, I could do um, William Shatner with his stilted voices. I can do Spock with his ears. I can do Bone saying he's dead, Jim. There have there've been mm. parody songs which have been done in the eighties. Every series not as um, is, is right for that. Not as overtly comic as Doctor Who. I, I, Every I think series that... is right for that, and it's a lot easier to poke fun at something when it's not on the air because it, it's not there to defend itself. See, I think the difference with with Doctor Who is mm. when people would uh, would uh, make a joke, or, for example, when they would uh, interview Martin Clunes about his latest television show, uh, they would have a bit of a laugh about when he was in Doctor Who and then cue comedy clip of, um, mm. you know, of him appearing... Martin yes, Clunes. Yes, uh, dressed... Yes, dressed in his new romantic costume. Uh, and so there are a lot, there are a lot more. If you if you take these things out of context uh, and just show a, a, a clip, it's easy to give the impression that Doctor Who was just uh, you know uh, an abysmal comedy pantomime, um, because they never showed any of the darker moments, any of the any of the real meat and bones of it. Because there's so much of the of the light comedy aspects that they can just pull out, and out of context, they look very funny. As Doctor Who fans, it's very easy for us to look at our programme and see how those people are laughing at it. But maybe we're misunderstanding how comedy is meant to work. So comedy itself needs subjects to play off. So in some respects, the tropes of Doctor Who are the brilliant backdrop to... Um, I know the, the example of the Lenny Henry sketch, the tropes of Doctor Who, but now we've got a black doctor and we've got some eight, some sort of 90s politics in there. That's that's the comedy. It's not really... It could be any backdrop, but they happen to have chosen Doctor Who. Or we've got then the thing you, that you guys were just talking about, ridiculing something, let's kick something while it's down. But in fact... All of that is just the nature of comedy. And you're right, it could be Star Trek, it could be anything else. I've, I've actually been, been doing a bit of thinking about this and I've come up with four different ways that people generally do jokes or, or, or um, comedic sketches on the subject of Doctor Who. So we've got ridiculing it, we've got paying tribute to it, uh, we've got using it as the backdrop, or alternatively we've got people talking about their relationship with it. And I think all of those are mm. differently satisfying or offensive depending on, on who you are. So um, <laughs> if you get the uh, the New Beginnings box set and look at the extras on An Unearthly Child, you've got uh, three sketches mm. with Mark Gatiss and David Williams, which are clearly yeah. in the tribute category. Mm. And they're absolutely wonderful. And they could only have been made by people who love the show. If you look at um, the work of Toby Haydoke and his Moth Take My Doctor Who scarf, there's somebody who's talking about their relationship with the programme. And it, it's, it's fond. It, the context of that means that, that we love it. And in fact, um, I, was, I was in the audience uh, the night that Toby Haydoke took to the stage just after the announcement of Billy Piper as the assistant. And he walked onto the stage to MC his own club, and all he said for about 30 seconds was Billy Piper in various degrees of exasperation. And an entire room full of people understood why that was the funniest thing in the, it, that could possibly have been said, because it was coming, coming from the heart. So I think comedy doesn't have to be about ridiculing, um, but comedy does need those stereotypes. It needs those tropes to play off. Yeah, and, and I think if you look at something like Curse of the Fatal Death, you've probably got elements of all four uh, and that's the BBC poking fun at itself you know and I think things like that helped to embed the idea that Doctor Who 
was a bit of a joke within the UK. You know, I mean, you don't have um, whichever channel it is that makes Star Trek making, you know, deliberately comic parodies of their own show. But you, I think maybe to take a step back from this, in order for something to be funny, you have to, it has to be understood. And I think it's a compliment to Doctor Who that it can be used in, in a comedic mm, or, in, exactly. or it can be a comedic way or it can be yeah, mocked. Exactly. You have to understand the joke for it to be funny. It has to be um, loved before I, it can be poked fun at. <laughs> definitely. Or, ha- yeah. or hated. Yeah, absolutely. Ab- ab- it, you, you can, <laughs> we we well, mentioned Jedward earlier as, a, as, an, as an obvious uh, object of, of mockery. Actually, something has to be either... Um, absolutely adored or universally derided in order for it to be a, a quick right. uh, setup for yeah. a joke. I, I, I accept that, but I, I quote Liberace, which I never thought I'd do in my adult life. You say, well, fair enough. If, 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 that's, if, that, if that's where Doctor Who is, then it's crying all the way to the cultural bank. Um, for, for instance, it, but, but the Doctor Who comedy turns up in the most unlikely places. There's a, um, a comedian called uh, in the UK called Peter Serafanovich, um, and I was just listening to his Radio 6 show, and a sketch came on about the, the, uh, the Dalek yoga and relaxation mm. tape. Yes. And it's as funny as you can imagine it being. It's just, it's, 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 it's absolutely fantastic. But the, but not only not only was the was the sketch funny. What really made me smile was okay. So my favourite show makes it into all these unexpected places. There's an episode of a show called Gimme 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 where a uh, a character in a wheelchair is referred to as Davros. It gets a huge <laughs> laugh out of, out of the audience. You know, so it, it's those little things which which suggest that Doctor Who is very much a part of the cultural landscape in the United Kingdom that gives me great hope and makes me quite proud of it. Yeah, I, I, I think it varies. I honestly think it varies. I think there are some times when I feel exactly the same way. I'm really pleased that Doctor Who and Daleks are making it onto national TV, very popular TV programmes, etc. I, I think that's really good but i think again it's back to taste if it gets to the point whereby it's it's too much then i think it can actually damage the institution and i think that's certainly what happens within the mid to late 1980s i'm interested to know though james you you talk of curse of the fatal death as though mm. it was somehow a bad thing and I, I watched oh no not at all yesterday. not at all it, it having having watched it recently uh, obviously written by Stephen Moffat, who uh, in a, I saw an interview with him uh, in the making of, was saying, you know, it'd be great one day to maybe make Doctor Who. And I'm sitting there going, this is the funniest thing ever, because what are you doing now? Um, but yeah. actually, actually, most of the jokes in there are either, they're either slapstick because it was a comic relief thing and it wasn't taking Doctor Who seriously, or they mm. are uh, character or situational. There's very few things where they're actually mocking the tropes of Doctor Who. They're just using oh, no. that I, whole I, Doctor I completely Who. agree. No, I'm, I'm, I'm with you there. I mean, don't get me wrong. I really quite enjoy Curse of the Fatal Death. I think it's, it's really good to watch. Uh, my, my point was, was it really helpful if the intention was to try and give Doctor Who a serious reputation once again in the UK? And the, the answer to that is pr- probably... For, no, though. you're quite right. You're quite right. It was never intended to do that. Um, it's it's only in hindsight now with you, well, people possibly like me who are desperate for to remember or desperate for people to remember the good bits of Doctor Who, not for it to be used as a as a comedy sketch uh, in order to try and make people laugh. And, you know, as I said, I, I really didn't dislike it. I don't resent its existence. I watch it now and I still think it's really funny. It's on it's on my iPad now on my iPad now actually. And and I think it's it's actually come full circle anyway, because if you look at the um the sketches that Comic Relief did with the eleventh Doctor, um uh, and Amy and Rory, Space and Time, I think they work really well as well and they work the other way. They actually, I think, embed 
the sense that Doctor Who is really popular, it's really contemporary, and it's really funny, and it doesn't poke fun at itself uh, in any way. There's no Dalek bumps used in an interesting way um, in, in, in the most recent uh, uh, comic relief skits. And I, I think there's a, it's a huge difference between comic relief in 2010 or 11, whenever that sketch was, and comic relief back when Fatal Death was made. <laughs> later go see the doctor can i offer a personal view here um because one of the things we were saying about for a joke to work the the subject matter must be in the consciousness of the audience i had a a, a wonderful moment yeah. on stage a, a few months ago there's a, a very small joke that i won't paraphrase for you now but i do in my own set and i was performing at a uh, a school so we had an audience of 14 15 year olds and i did my doctor who joke and the entire room got it and it's not that good a joke. <laughs> and at the time, I even commented on that. I was like, how good is this? There are 14, 15-year-old kids who can understand a Doctor Who joke. It's back. Mm. It's in the consciousness. Please tell us the joke. Oh, it's... Uh, <laughs> In, in context, it's a bit funnier. Um, it, it's from my it's from my friend show where I talk about um, the the use of the word heart in songs. That's never very satisfying. So, for example, um, the the song to do Ron Ron. I met him on a Monday and my heart stood still. I mean, that's not love, is it? That's just that's just instant death. Uh, and in the case of Phil <laughs> Collins, um, two hearts. I mean, two hearts. Come on, that's only true if you're a time lord. It's, it's hey, but that, the point being, I always, I still do that despite the fact it's not a big laugh, just to find the Doctor Who fans in the audience. <laughs> and I had a room full of children yeah. who love the program as much as we do, and that is just oh, brilliant. brilliant. So uh, that fact, is a fantastic story. So for the first, the curse of the fatal death to work, it had to make the assumption that there were Doctor Who fans out there who would get why those jokes were funny, and I, I think that's that's just brilliant. Michelle. Pass the scissors, will you? I need to make another cut. Sure. Now where did I put them? This is ridiculous. How does anyone find anything in this excuse for an editing suite? Well, quite. I've told Trevor that if he doesn't get us a replacement assistant soon, I'm seriously going to consider offering my reviewing services to another podcast. Good luck with that. Last time I asked Trev about Kang's successor, he started mumbling about being ripped off by some large blue con man flogging hokey Mondozian audio tech. When I asked politely what that meant, he told me to make do with what I had or else he'd get that chameleon character back in. Oh, perish the thought. Hang on. What did he mean by make do with what you had? Ah. Well, I assumed he meant you. Right. That does it. Calm down, Ian. It's just a commercial. Easy for you to say, Michelle, but I'm fed up with being treated like a second-rate ogron. No one appreciates the complexity of what we do. Not only did Kang edit in a brilliantly professional way, he was the only one who showed any appreciation of the pressure we work under. Producing high-quality reviews in this sweaty annex of a pretend caravan, week in, week out, for that ungrateful bunch of overlords, it's not easy, you know. Kang certainly was a lifesaver, wasn't he? Boy, that's a sentiment you don't hear expressed very often about a Cyberman. But he was our Cyberman. And frankly, I loved him. Even if he did show the occasional psychopathic tendency. Which reminds me, how are the organ transplants? Working wonderfully. And he was such a good editor. At least until Trev upset him. 
Audacity compatible, DAC Pro efficient, and AutoCloud enabled makes the 1.1 version of the Cyber Editing Unit one of the most advanced yet affordable models on the market. With the new optional protocol droid interface, he was also capable of over six million forms of communication. Oh, Kang, I do miss you. If only Trevor hadn't asked him to chuck another chuck on the Barbie, he'd still be here. Cyber Leader Kang, the best editing unit available on the market and a bargain at just three million credits. Just keep him away from grumpy Antipodeans. Now comes with a free upgrade for all humanoid users. Non-returnable deposits will be required. No intergalactic tax, no VAT, no money back, no guarantee. Dalek or Scythe are rich or poor, will cut prices at a score. God bless. I saw a joke uh, uh, on Twitter actually, and I'm not sure who it's credited to. That was uh, that was Dalek humor. Did, uh, did, have you did, did you read it? No, I don't think so. No. Okay. Well, the, the joke goes. You probably need to, you need to hear it in a Dalek voice. Um, two men in a uh, sorry, uh, Englishman, Irishman, Scotsman, and Dalek in boat. Boat sinks. Daleks can breathe underwater. Ha 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 ha. <laughs> Dalek humor. <laughs> <laughs> On Twitter, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, well, that's it. It's, it's hilarious. But no, I, no, okay, so I'm not clearly I'm not an actor because I can't do it. Mm, on I think I prefer Ashley's two hearts. Joke yeah, me too. <laughs> and, and I think yeah. on that note, Tom, I think you've uh, indicated quite clearly it's time for us to say goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I I suppose thank it only you. leaves us to say thank you very much, Ashley, for joining us. Um, it, it's been an absolute blast. Well, thank you for having thank you, me. Ashley. Yes. Now, when you're not uh, co-hosting on the DWP, uh, where can people find you? What will you be doing around the traps in the next few months? Well, the big thing for me this year is my Edinburgh Fringe show, which is called Discography, which is all about whether my songwriting career has given me a discography or, or a load of scribble. Uh, and that can be found on www.discography.co.uk. And that's the words disco and graffiti uh, next to each other, discography.co.uk. Come and see me at the Edinburgh Festival. It'll be lovely to have you in the audience. And I'll be doing my hilarious Doctor Who joke one more time. <laughs> <laughs> worth the price of admission alone, I should think. Absolutely, it's a free show. Absolutely certainly worth, worth that. <laughs> well, I think it's apt for an episode. <laughs> I I think it's apt for an episode about comedy and Doctor Who that I'm I'm leaving this episode with a big smile on my face. So I'll say uh, goodbye to you, Tom. Goodbye to you, James. Goodbye to you, Lisa, and of course, goodbye, Ashley. And um, we'll see you all next week, guys. Fantastic. Cheerio. Bye for now. Happy hundred and fiftieth. Bye. God, I feel old. That was the Doctor Who podcast which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it in to feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care. The new cyber editing unit now comes with free upgrade for... All humanoid users, non-returnable deposits will be required. No intergalactic tax, no VAT, no money back, no guarantee. Black or 
rich or poor will cut prices at a stock. Long live Hooky Street. Long live Hooky Street. Long live Hooky Street. Street. Say fantastic. Hooky Street, say fantastic. Hooky Street, say fantastic. Hooky Street.